0: to episode 21 of Cultural Capital. I'm Andy Hazel. I'm Anders Firth.
1: And I'm Eloise Ross.
0: And in this episode we'll be talking about Asghar Fahadi's Academy Award winning The Salesman. Eloise will be sharing her interview with Dan Whelan, director of the documentary Bulkland. And we'll single out our picks from the latest offerings at MUBI. But first, a film that explores Australia's film history through one of its most prominent enthusiasts, David Stratton, A Cinematic Life. <laughs>
2: when the lights would dim and the curtains would open, there was something magical about it.
3: Priscilla, queen of the desert. Place your beds, gents.
1: You're terrible, Muriel.
3: Two beers, all right? One for me. One
1: for me, mate. He's a cinephile, a film escapist. He has an encyclopedic knowledge of Cinema. He has seen more films than I think anyone else I know. Some
2: people's hobby was collecting stamps, mine was collecting movies. I was an outsider in my own family, a black sheep who loved movies. David Stratton, A Cinematic Life, is a curious hybrid documentary. Director Sally Aitken follows Stratton, who, along with Margaret Pomeranz, would be Australia's most well known film critic. Stratton talks about the Australian films that have apparently most influenced his life, from Breaker Morant to Strictly Ballroom and The Castle. In between interviews with Stratton, Aiken asks the who's who of the Australian film industry for their opinions on The Critic. Curiously, these interviewees also spend a lot of time talking about how wonderful other Australian movies are. The end result is an interesting hybrid, part Stratton biography, part advertisement for the Australian film industry. This hybridity reflects the film's production context. This movie has been made from the same material behind an upcoming ABC TV series called David Stratton's Stories of Australian Cinema. If you were cynical, you might think that all they've done is taken this material, added in some of David's admittedly intriguing backstory, and slapped together a nice money spinner. Or you can see this as a love letter to the power of our national cinema and those who champion it, one man in particular. There are some revealing moments littered within the film. At one point, David says, I believe I was a nasty child. Yes, I think I was. So, Andy, were you seduced by David Stratton's cinematic life?
0: No, not really, which was a shame because I think this film has the potential to be really, really great. I mean, you've got, like, an audience... A potential audience that have not seen enough Australian cinema and you've got a man who's incredibly passionate and knowledgeable about it and is seen like you said as one of the most obvious people who's able to communicate to this sort of larger audience and I think it's kind of a missed opportunity though I'm reserving judgment until I see the TV series uh, the film itself, I think, is really, really strange. It's, a, like you said, a strange hybrid. Um, there's an odd combination of interview and voiceover, which is very clumsily edited together. You can very obviously hear the tonal shifts mid-sentence as they switch from him being interviewed to him doing a pre-recorded voiceover. I thought the editing was thematic. Sometimes it was literal. Sometimes in the beginning, they seemed to be building sentences out of editing Australian films together, which they kind of abandoned about <laughs> 10, 15 minutes into the film the best thing about it uh, is the insight you get into some films like Wake in Fright is a fascinating film that's still underseen although you know there was, it's, he, there was a whole bunch of stuff that they left out about that you know I mean, the film was lost for about 20 something years yeah. um, Muir's Wedding was nice to revisit seeing the castle again brought back some pretty huge lols in the cinema I was in but
1: hmm. then
0: also he picks up films like Jeddah which a lot of people haven't seen and then spoils the ending straight away
1: <laughs> that's but, fine it's, it's the 60, film's years 60 years old, old. yeah, 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 when yeah. You've, who's seen it I've seen it Have too you? many times.
2: Wow! I saw it once, and oh, uh, I yeah, That was enough. Um, um, Never realised it was possible.
0: Yeah, um, but also there's other right. stuff we missed out on. Like he seems to go from being an usher at the Sydney Film Festival to being its director without with no explanation at all. And, and well, there basically no was then.
1: no explanation, Andy. I think he was offered it as uh, maybe uh, via emergency circumstances, or there was some like very you know very quick process by, by which he became the director of. Sydney Film Festival so I mean maybe the film did need to elucidate on that a yeah. little bit more but it was very abrupt for him and his kind of takeover of this he was super I, young at the time 24 I think yeah, or something. Yeah,
2: yeah. I think that's that's I agree with you Andy this is what I wanted more of because there are some sort of gaps or things that are sort of glossed over in the film so he, he talks about his sort of strained relationship with his father and his family and that comes across quite powerfully but then suddenly it's like, oh, then I was off doing this, then I was mm. seeing this movie, then this film sort of connected to me. It doesn't really go into much detail about this. It's sort of mentioned he has a maybe slightly emotional moment and then we sort of move on to the next thing. Yeah. I would have liked I think this is a symptom of the fact that it's sort of half a story about him, half a story about Australian cinema. Um, Definitely, yeah. I felt like yeah. we got to see
0: events that happened to him but we don't really get to know him any better.
1: Well, can I just, I mean, have you, either of you read his autobiography? Yes, like I have. Pete on Fellini. I yeah. got him
2: to sign it. Oh, uh, beautiful. Back when I was 18. Yeah.
1: <laughs> Great. <laughs> I feel like his autobiography is, is similar to this because his life is so intertwined with, yeah. with his career. Yeah. They are basically inseparable. Totally. But in his autobiography you do kind of just get this listing of events that occurred to him or that he instigated without real exploration as to how it made him feel, you know, what led to what, how he changed the person. And so perhaps that's just what we're going to get in regards to David Stratton and his impact on Australian film is that it's mostly going to be about the film and he as a person m- maybe is, is more reserved than that.
2: I quite liked how and you sort of got the sense that he was opening up when he showed us his, um, like, archives of every single card that he's kept on these films, dating back to bloody, when he was, like, what, eight years old or something? Mm. it's was, like, very, very young. Mm. And he's kept this fi- manual filing system still to this day by of notable directors. He says, not every director, notable directors. <laughs> that would be ridiculous. Yeah, uh, <laughs> Yes, of course. Um, in this ginormous cabinet in his... Uh, study. I thought that, that was nice. That insight was nice. I loved seeing him and Margaret Pomeranz back yeah. on screen again. Yeah. I mean, they have a real chemistry. Yeah. And it really made me realise they were the perfect old couple of Australian TV for three decades. It's quite remarkable what they achieved um, as this sort of public broadcasting duo. Um, so I loved to be reminded of all of that. Mm. Um, and, you know, some of the Australian film stuff I found interesting too. I thought the discussion of the castle was uh, quite overdue, I think, in yes. sort of, yeah, yeah, mm. yeah, yeah, you know, so I remember critically that, reappraising episode, it.
0: The, that episode where he gave it one and a half stars and being really surprised that he was as mm. harsh as he was. So yeah, right. that was really nice to see in, um, in reflection.
1: I wanted to bring up just briefly, Anders, and I know that you, you know, we can talk about this more later, but that you interviewed him earlier this week for your job um, at The Citizen. Yeah. And I was reading the interview and it's really interesting because he talks about the movie and his approach to the movie and also his opinion of it as a finished product he says this really interesting thing there were times I wondered quite where it was going during the production process of the film because it didn't as though he didn't know whether it was gonna be a portrait of his life or whether he didn't know if it was gonna be like a history of Australian cinema which I think as you've we've all said it's like this strange mix of the two but I just feel like it's a bit it is a bit strange That, I mean, firstly, that he would say something like that, given that it's a film about him. Yeah. But secondly, that it is basically a portrait of Australian cinema and he should definitely be present in it, but that it is marketed as a film about him. It
2: is. But it's
1: not. And I'm like, so is he just being used kind of as a selling point? And if that's the case... Is that what makes it unsatisfying? Because it's not completely history, but it's not a portrait of him at all. We just see the things that he's done. Because Margaret and David are so important to us as a culture, and so, you know, historically uh, have been around for as long as we have, basically. Is there just some kind of fandom culture around them, and this is why we're getting this movie? I read a newspaper article that seemed, it was presenting as though it had a this huge big scoop that was like David Stratton reveals his favorite movie of all time yes. and I saw the title of that article and I was like I know what it is it's singing in the rain he said singing it before yeah, yeah, yeah. and yeah. I read the article My and rest indeed, Nashville. Yeah, but indeed it was singing in the rain and I yeah. was like why are we returning to this you know kind of mm. celebration of of their expressions that they've already that we already all know yeah and I just feel like that kind of obsession is entwined in the reason of why this movie is what it is, yeah. you know. And
2: I uh, yeah, I totally agree. I mean so he said that the film so this it started life as this ABC T V series, there was no film thing mm. and and the TV series started i think at the same time out the movies was ending. Right. So his producer came to him and was like, "Hey, I've got this an idea for a documentary series on Australian cinema. Would you be interested in produce, or, you know, hosting it, doing the interviews, being mm. part of it?" And he said, "Yep, sounds good." And then I think along the way someone somewhere has gone, "Oh, we could make some money if we partner with an outside institution or something and turn this into separate thing. So the T V series on Australian Cinema is still coming and it uses a lot of this same material and then fleshes out a lot of it too. And in the meantime we have this film that you're right is being marketed as a David Stratton, the story of David Stratton, which is a very interesting story I've got to say, but it's not what you get in the film, you get some of it. Yeah. You get sort of hints at it, but not to any satisfy. I found not to any sort of satisfying degree. And I and you can tell in the film because sometimes David Stratton is conducting the interviews with people about other films, and you know that he's doing this for a documentary series about Australian cinema, not <laughs> for a movie about himself. So yeah. it's, it's there in the text, and that's the frustrating thing about this film. I think is that it just feels a bit too cynically made in that you know or or it hasn't quite gone the whole hog either way and so the end result is this odd you know and you know he says this is a very unique way of telling a story it is unique um because not a lot of films take this approach to their subject talking about your subject through the films that he says have influenced him it feels like a bit of a mess
0: because I saw it uh, yesterday at Cinema Nova and I was by far the youngest person in the cinema and people were I haven't seen people interacting with the screen as much in a film for a long long time But as soon as, Mm. like, you know, Margaret and David came on, it was, like, this audible joy in the cinema. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, that's...
1: Like, yeah, Yeah. Yeah, comfort. Yeah, it was beautiful, in a way. Yeah, yeah, that was one of my
0: favourite things about it. It was just, like, this
2: familiarity, and
1: everyone instantly
2: responds to it. And And that's the thing people say is missing. And I asked him about this in my interview, and he agrees. Like, there is this gap now where Margaret and David were in Australian film culture. So, I mean, the thing that all distributors talk about was this idea of the Margaret and David effect, where, you know, you had these guys talking every week about films that you would otherwise never hear about and if they both really like them you might be inspired to go see a film that you otherwise would not see
0: there's a measurable economic impact yeah yeah totally
2: Mm. totally and now that they've gone and the abc did not replace them immediately i think they've there's this window has closed now and so there's no one's really performing that same role so they had a huge Impact on people's lives, I think. And mm. You're right, as this sort of cut this weekly comfort. You know, when I, I grew up watching these people, and it was like, they're never going to. I never once thought we'd live in a post Margaret and David world. <laughs> but here <Yeah>. we are.
0: <laughs> it's a, yeah, it's an interesting like um, glimpse into the siloisation, I suppose, of Australian culture. And there is this huge economic impact from having the ABC spending a little bit of money to have a TV show like that, that you can then, you know, have this, m- flow this on ongoing affection. effect. Yeah, they, yeah, yeah. Since yeah, you can't totally. measure that within the ABC, they're going to go, oh, that's just, we can't afford this, it's too expensive, we're not yeah, going to bother yeah. replacing it. Yeah, that's totally.
2: a total shame. Uh, it's interesting that it talks about it. I also thought it was great that they interviewed Jeffrey Wright, yes. director of Stomper who famously uh, mm. threw a glass of wine on David after he refused to review stomper. So it wasn't just a hagiography. So I, you know, I appreciated that. Mm. Um, yeah. Even though it speaking kind of, was. of
1: hagiographies, where's our Margaret movie?
2: Exactly. <laughs> Where I'd like
1: to see that. <laughs> I'd like she, to make
2: that? <laughs> I know. Oh, I know. And she's so she's such an interesting figure. She would be great.
0: Yeah, Because yeah, in a way, you can get a glimpse into like public broadcasting through her, given that she came up through SBS and
2: hosted Vox Populi years, a... years before yeah, yeah, she started. Yeah, yeah. The... So yeah, overall, mm. I think I would just wait for this ABC TV because the Australian cinema stuff, I think, is important and interesting, and I think it's good that we have these conversations about the impact these films have, um, and it's good to be reminded of this stuff every now and then. I would wait for that, and I would borrow IP Don Fellini from the library and you probably get more insight into both Australian cinema and David Stratton's life
0: mm. seconded um, from a filmmaker who famously loathes handheld camera to a film that he loved and features a surprising amount of handheld camera <laughs> Asghar Hardy's The Salesman
3: The
2: Canada,
0: for Hardy came to global attention with his 2014 Oscar winner A Separation, and The Salesman is his seventh feature film, and after winning Best Screenplay and Best Actor at Cannes last year, its profile has exploded in the last few months. In January it became a nominee for the Best Foreign Film Academy Award. And following the American government's executive order barring Iranians from entering the United States, Fahadi said he would not attend the Academy Awards, and the film became a symbol of the sort of diversity Hollywood likes to be seen to be embracing, and that is being viewed as a threat by some people in Washington. On February 26th, the mayor of London, Sadiq Khan, presented the salesman in Trafalgar Square to tens of thousands of viewers in a celebration of the city's diversity. And now it's indelibly tied to geopolitical movements. But the story itself is very personal. Imad and Rana are a couple producing Arthur Miller's play Death of a Salesman in a theatre in Tehran. And when their apartment begins to collapse, the couple wind up living in a new apartment where a female tenant has just moved out. One night Imad goes out and returns to find the bathroom walls covered in blood and his wife the victim of a violent home invasion. Thus begins a story of trauma and how it impacts the couple and how they deal with its aftermath. Eloise, did you buy what the salesman is selling?
1: (laughs) <laughs> I totally did. I really did. I just, I was so absorbed for the entire film and it follows some very different tracks, this film, and so to, for it to keep my attention and uh, emotional dedication is a real feat, I think. But this is such a rich, burning portrait of things like g- grief, alienation, and anxiety. Um, which Asghar Fahadi is, is so good at observing in, in his films. I mean, the husband and wife made such a great pair at the beginning and then you begin to really feel, feel for them and for what they're going through. And so I think... Well, although the entire composition of the film is strong, and I want to talk about this later and see, you know, what you guys picked up in terms of production design, and I think Fahadi's direction is really incredible, leading to his Academy Award, no doubt. It's the screenplay, which won Best Screenplay at Cannes, that I think is so impeccable in this film, just perfect. Um, The way that he can make the audience sympathise with another man, another family, like a completely entirely different point of view within this film, sort of like within such close succession of, of uh, aligning with one family and then kind of with another. I think that's just, just so extraordinary, the way that he draws us in. There's no judgment in his in his screenplay, There's in his creation of characters, it's only compassion. And I think that was a really beautiful thing. And so I was just stunned by this movie.
2: I quite liked it. I will not say I was stunned by it, but I did quite like it. I, you're absolutely right. The It never... It never went the way I was sort of thinking it was going. And so there were times where I was sort of droning out, oh, God, it's going to go, this is what's going to happen. And then it never went that way. The, yeah, the final sort of scene, the final act, I guess, of the film, um, set in their sort of new apartment, that was just, yeah, it was really, really gripping. I agree with you on the filmmaking, and there's some things I'd love to point out too. However, I, I thought it was a bit long. In the middle section, I, my interest was sort of coming and going, but then it definitely, it, it came back in a big wave. And they're such fascinatingly complex characters, this, this couple, and quite quite ambiguously so, which is quite interesting. Yeah, Yeah. You
1: can't, although there's so much expression on their faces, you don't always know what that expression means um, Mm. or what they're thinking. You can assume um, and there is a lot of, you know, suggestion and I assume it's, you know, because of some of the limits of Iranian culture and Iranian cinema, but not everything is directly referenced. There's a lot of illusion in in the dialogue. um, Yeah, totally. Necessarily so, but I think that almost makes it Better because from from an audience perspective we don't know everything because not everything is explicitly spoken or shown.
0: Yeah, that's what I found really fascinating too, is that it sounds from the beginning like you're gonna be getting a Turanian version of Death of a Salesman and there's gonna be all these allegories between the play yeah, yeah, yeah. and but that's never is never made that obvious. But it's Fahadi's commitment to their like the emotional core of each mm-hmm. of these people, and he just kind of puts them in these really interesting, si- complex situations, and then watches them kind of reason their way out of it. And so I found my, my allegiance is, you know, always with the main couple. But then you could also see the tensions, and um, mm-hmm. and they were just they were just um, elucidated in a really really interesting way. So that even when when Imad, um, played by Shahab Hosseini, who was the one best actor at Cannes. Is you know arguing about you know not knowing how to look, care for his wife or look after her and trying to be patient and trying to do all this sort of stuff. I was really like I could easily put myself in his shoes and see that he was being you know a, a, a bit of an asshole, but at the same time you could like totally empathize with everything he was feeling and. Yeah. That wasn't going to be that anger wasn't going to be sustained. It was just unraveling.
2: I just found so yes. fascinating. Yeah, that, the cinema has this long history of these ostensibly liberal, uh, as the other couple say, um, who who live his neighbours say, oh, they're cultural types. They're they're fine. <laughs> they're fine for our apartment block. Well, he's he's this English teacher. He's an actor in um, this community play of Death of the Salesman. And he comes across as this sort of knowledgeable, quite liberal, kind-hearted kind kind of guy. And then you just see, bit by bit, how how much the culture he lives in, I guess, is sort of bending that into Mm. different, out of shape and kind of almost straw dog style he sort of loses yeah, the yeah. plot in a way you know yeah. he goes from this mild mannered academic type into something else entirely which I found really really interesting mm, yeah yeah and it's watching those steps along that in that process
0: that I find make this film so yeah. remarkable yeah
1: yeah I really loved I've, you know, he won Best Actor at Cannes, and I was kind of like, well, why didn't the woman who played Rana. Well, exactly, win yeah, best, Aludosti. Yeah, mm. win Best Actress because she was stunning as well. But I can totally see in that final scene everything is, I mean, her face just contains so much meaning and desire, but also, you know, all of these complicated emotions. But he's, I mean, he doesn't say anything in that final sequence, and I knew everything that he was going through.
0: I thought that was the same with a, a separation. It was yeah. like ne- nothing ever felt forced, mm, even slightly. Yeah. It was all just really, really naturalistic. It was. It's one of, yeah, it's, it, like there aren't that many great examples of neorealism I find now, but his work is just, is just really, really, really interesting. Yeah, but
1: speaking of neorealism, I mean, what I really loved was all of these incredible insertions of performative boldness in terms of like the set design for um death of a salesman that that neon which was so bold and the second shot or the third shot it was quite early on but you know there were these um cuts from a really handheld camera like really cluttered realness to this this very structured kind of aesthetically pleasing Mm. um, design. And I thought that was great as well. I really liked, and it doesn't always work, but I really liked the balance Mm. between the, you know, the main narrative and then these cuts to the play. And sometimes they commented on each other. Sometimes they didn't. Occasionally I think they were served as introductions to whatever emotional thing was going to occur Mm. in the next Mm. scene. And that was Mm. really well done.
0: Yeah, I thought it was really interesting seeing when these main characters... Could or chose to express their re- their real feelings, because there are often times where you could tell that anger was being bottled up, particularly in- with Imad, and the way that the man who put them in into the apartment that they're in as a favour, Babak, that's all really held back. There's only a certain amount of information about the home invasion that he can share, and whereas in other cases, like at home, or he can be, be much more open. Or when he's driving his car, mm. that's when it all comes out.
2: <laughs> that's really interesting, and that's what I really loved about the film. It becomes this commentary on like. Iranian culture and like their particular patriarchal society through the lens of this event and this main couple. And I thought he's, ve- he's very very clever at extrapolating those sort of bigger themes or, or focusing them in these two characters. And the filmmaking was wonderful too.
1: The editing, I loved this just fluidness of the editing was incredible. I felt particularly noticed these shots when the couple was moving their furniture up the staircase. You know, or, like, running up and yes. down the staircase in yes. the final act. You know, it didn't distract me from the movie at all.
2: I think I audibly gasped at the um, the sort of slow zoom into the door when she, like, oh opens God. the yeah. door. So That's, like, yeah. pure,
1: like, horror movie it kind is. of stuff. So, so, so And it's
2: just very slowly, this door that's ajar, and you're like, oh, God, look, mm. she's done something here yeah. wrong here. Little moments like that really made this film for me. Yeah. Definitely.
0: So I think cultural capital is giving two thumbs up.
1: Six thumbs, thumbs up. up. Six four, thumbs
0: up. Four stars from me, <laughs> <laughs> Oh, Dave. <laughs> and people
3: say, oh, I don't want to buy uh, stuff from China. But really, they, they have no choice. They, everything
0: they use is from China. So. For Chinese people, I'm blonde girl. I looks like queen. They look at me like, like this. they want me. My friends have been here in EU for uh, 25 years, some of them 30 years. They have business, they have money. Everything they need is here.
1: Surviving the Great Mall of China is the wonderful tagline for a recent documentary by Australian filmmaker Daniel Whelan and Swedish journalist and photographer Tobias Anderson Ackerblom. Bulkland explores the cultural and capitalist influences that operate in a small Chinese city of Iwu in central Zhejiang province in the country's east coast. And it is, as the documentary tells us, the town that dollar stores built. Iwu invented the dollar store, and Iwu relies on the dollar store for its existence. Throughout this short, concise portrait of E. it's about a 60-minute film, the filmmakers allow their subjects to picture themselves vividly, and we are allowed to become connected to their lives. As Whelan describes in our interview, each of his and Ackerblom's subjects serve a specific role in the city. The unskilled migrant, the shop owner, the migrant worker's employer, the buyer of goods, and the entertainer. Amidst interviews with these people, the filmmakers insert fascinating footage of life in Ewul where the wholesale market Ewul International Mart, glistens with cheap products bright unnatural fluorescent colors and sounds revealed as at once effervescent in its vastness and bleak in its monotony. The documentary serves as a personal story and history of the town that has grown in recent years due to demand for small goods but is under threat from production, shifting to foreign countries where manufacturing goods is just as easy and the cost of purchasing them is less. China is changing, as the film tells us, and its economic outlook suggests that it may not be the world's leading manufacturer of cheap goods forever. Not everything is perfect in this production process, but there could have been a little more time, I think, in the film on on the devastating effects of this mass production chain. There was an indication of where dollar store products came from and how they were being made. Ultimately, it's quite a fun portrait that hints at devastation, at something changing that could affect millions of lives. But I feel like because it was only 60 minutes that that the filmmakers couldn't get quite specific enough. According to Whelan, there was much more footage, but certain demands meant that they reduced its length. And while it might have a different place in the documentary market, I think I really would like to see the longer film. Here are some snippets of the interview I did with Daniel Whelan.
3: Polkane is a a view of a city and it's a fascinating city and it's fascinating people who live there.
1: Did you go there before you planned the project or how did you find out about it?
3: i just moved to Shanghai. Sorry, just a bit of background. I just moved to Shanghai and I I picked up this magazine and saw an article about Iwu in it. Yeah. And I I, I went and met someone who I'd met last time I was in Shanghai a couple of years before and I, I said... Hey, I wanted. I would love to make a film about this city. It sounds bizarre, and he said, "Oh, I'm thinking about planning a, an article about it because he's a journalist." Yeah, that was it. We just we were like, "Great!" You know, we were on the same wavelength. We went we went to the city, and it sort of confirmed our interest in making the story.
1: It's like a migrant city, right? But what is the population in general? Is there a gauge?
3: From memory, was about two point one, sorry, one point seven million I think oh, okay. and I think that was a oh. 2010 figure. Okay. So I'm not sure but I would assume that the population has diminished slightly because yeah you're right it is a migrant town. Yeah. I think it's um nearly half the population are not from there. Okay. And I imagine that a lot of them were going where the money is. So I, a lot of them would be um, these uh, migrants, internal migrants from other provinces in China. A lot, a lot of people would just go where the money is or just go back
1: home. Do you know if people in Shanghai, because um, that's where you were living, had other people that you just spoke to on the street um, or in your workplace heard of Iwu?
3: A lot of um, longer-term expats in Shanghai had heard of Iwu. It's it's, it's not that well known in, in the Western well, but it's quite well known in China because yeah. of because of the uh, of the stuff they create. The, the, the small commodities, so those dollar store products that you see a lot of in the film, Chinese people call those iwu products or okay. iwu, iwu things.
1: When you got to the town, like one of the main kind of focuses of your film is this man, uh, this English man called Nigel Kropp. So how did you meet him?
3: Alright, so it was a, it's. It was kind of a funny thing. He's, um, his old business partner was an Australian guy who was based on the Sunshine Coast. So uh, I, I lived in Brisbane for a number of years. I, I live in Sydney now, but I used to live in Brisbane. And I remember just Googling EWU Australia business to see if there was any characters in in um, in. Australia that I could possibly spend time with, do a bit of research, you know, maybe, maybe they'd go on a trip to Ewoo and I could follow them, something like that. Um and I like the first thing that came up on Google, I'm not sure whether it still is, I haven't looked, but the first thing that came up was this this office on the Sunshine Coast. I can't remember what the name of the business the the, the uh their little sort of catchphrase was, but it was something like, you know, Iwo Australia uh imports and I was like, Oh great, you know, yeah, the Sunshine Coast. Uh, so it's like an hour away from where I was living in Brisbane. But I emailed him, and no one lived on the Sunshine Coast. It was just his business partner's dad's house or something. So I gave him a call, and we had a, a really long chat. Uh, yeah, and he was very happy to be in the film and to help us out, and then, and he's a big part of the film.
1: But early on in the film, there's a, this, I think, a shot of maybe his office or somewhere in his factory with a whiteboard. Uh, that has a quote "Do more than is required" written on it. Was that there, or did yeah, you yeah. kind of you didn't oh. tell him to write it? No,
3: no. <laughs> no, 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 that wasn't that wasn't a prop. That was um, that was there. Yeah, mm-hmm. uh, he had a lot of great stuff on the walls. They all the different currency. Uh, we did a shot of all the different currency that he's collected, and then next to that was that old sort of social realist, old sort of communist picture right next to his. Yeah. His office was very bulky, very cool.
1: He talks about quality control being a really important... Like, he seems like a really genuinely nice guy and someone who's very invested in his work and his, you know, output. So he talks about quality control as being a really key part of his job, making sure that the products that he exports aren't... They're not terrible products, so they're well-made. But he says that, you know, Chinese... He makes this kind of throwaway comment. People in China have... or people overseas have a bad perception of Chinese goods.
3: Yeah, I mean, the perception of around the world, and especially in Australia and places and in the West, is that Chinese products are low, low quality, or they're going to break. That's true and it's untrue, right? I mean, I mean, everything that I'm holding, I'm, I'm using a recording equipment, I'm talking into a computer, that are both probably made in China. You know, they're high-tech, wonderful sort of machines that are, you know, but then you've got other stuff that will last two days and you'll not be surprised it's like a bottle opener that you buy at a service station breaks after three uses you're not going to go ah! you know, it's, it's, yeah. it's not a surprise to you that, that that kind of Chinese product breaks so quickly and um, those kind of things are oh, a big part of the market in EWU and that's what Nigel has to deal with I guess like he is he's buying and selling those products
1: and i think that the amount of stuff that he would get that would be
3: uh, like almost un- <laughs> almost unsellable almost unusable you yeah. know would be hard it would be a hard part of his job to be constantly sorting through all of those uh fighting all those beach toys that are going to break and things like that I, I don't envy him um and i guess i guess what he meant by that is that he prides himself on, on his ability to see that trash and not uh, and, and not pass that on to his customers. We didn't put in the film, but he talks a lot about the bad experiences that people have coming to EWU and buying stuff, you know, like yeah. buying shipments of stuff that's just not what they paid for. The film isn't to sort of confirm or, or deny the quality of the stuff coming out of places like EWU, but it's more to show you exactly what goes into it, what who are the, who are the people there who are working to get you that that Santa hat that you've you know or that or that that that, um, that that necklace that you bought for a costume or something that that's sort of more what we were getting at
1: you do though I think you know I feel like everyone in the west has this Idea whether it's a scorn or whether it's that things that are made in China are made, you know, mass produced in these factories. But there's you show footage of women like assembling hair clips on cards and fixing zippers um, while like outside in their rural villages talking to their children. So it gets to this really quite personal stage both in like the marketplace and also in this the production area which really you know shifts kind of my feeling now of this stuff that i use i'm wondering if you got if you kind of got personally involved with anyone that you were dealing with or if you found it hard to maintain a distance well that's wonderful here i'm really glad i mean that
3: was what we we uh what we were trying to do, you know, is shift people's perspective, and I'm I'm, I'm always very very happy and very chuffed when when people say that that it, that it's going to change the way they consume those kind of products. Uh, yeah, to, look, we got very close with everyone, to be honest. I my background's sort of in drama mostly. You know, I I look at um, characters and and situations and 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 story. Whereas my co-producer Tobias was is a journalist, so he's he's very strict about what we could and couldn't do. Why did you call it
1: bulk land?
3: We called it bulk land because everything you buy there has to be in bulk, basically, and everything there is cheap. We thought that that was a great way to <laughs> to describe the feeling of being in Ewol, you know. Everything is cheap and everything is plentiful. You know, things that you would see one of or two of in a store that no one's really almost expecting to sell, just a little weird upsell item that someone chucked in their bag. You would see an entire store or six stores dedicated to that one item. Uh, We just wanted to evoke that with the with the name.
1: Bulkland is available to stream on SBS On Demand, or for purchase or rent on iTunes and other online services. So check it out.
0: And now to Melbourne's film diary. So, opening on Thursday, March 16th, is the Melbourne Queer Film Festival, whose opening night film I Am Michael, a true story about a gay activist who rejected his homosexuality to become a Christian pastor, stars Emma Roberts, Zachary Quinto and James Franco. Anders. Yes. You've seen another James Franco film that's appearing at
2: MQFF. I have. I've seen King Cobra. I love this film. Totally recommend it. It's sexy and it's trashy and it's lots of fun. It's based on an infamous True story, which if you know anything about the gay porn scene, then you'd probably know about this. The murder of a porn producer by Associates of Brent Corrigan, who was a famous gay porn star of the early to mid 2000s. I really love this film so brent corrigan is played by garrett clayton who's sort of like this b grade zach efron guy at the moment um he was in teen beach movie which was disney channel's kind (laughs) of lame follow-up to high school musical and he played link larkin in hairspray live oh my god great the kind of lame version of uh 2007 and the 1989's hairspray like efron Garrett Clayton is branching out into more adult fare and he's quite annoying but very sexy in this film so he fulfills his brief well Christian Slater appears too and he's wonderful giving very much similar vibes to his performance in Mr Robot I won't really talk about James Franco but I also want to say how amazing it is to see Molly Ringwald and Alicia Silverstone
1: I'm so pumped for this movie just for those two. Oh
2: my god, Alicia Silverstone. It's like I miss you so much Alicia Silverstone. It's so good that she's in this. Um, Yeah, everything about This is gay heaven. It's sexy, it's melodramatic, and it's got Alicia Silverstone. So I recommend it.
0: (laughs) Um, Did you realise we may be talking about um, Academy Award nominated Alicia Silverstone this time next year? Why? Because she's starring in Yorgos Lanthimos' next film. Mm -hmm. Killing of a oh Sacred Deer. Oh my god, deer.
1: I knew that! That's I'm so excited. I'm
0: here for Alicia Silverstone's Resurgence. Nicole Kidman and Alicia Silverstone are starring <laughs> in his next Shut film. Shut
1: up!
2: <laughs>
0: it's going to be amazing. <laughs> that's awesome. Colin Farrell also in it. Uh, the, who
2: cares?
0: Yeah, okay. but yeah Alicia Silverstone, no, Lewis awesome. Lanthimos together at last. Yeah, cool. <laughs> um,
2: Ethel, that sounds incredible. I think would like to see King Cobra. Yeah, totally recommend it. It's great fun. It's great.
0: Also screening in Melbourne between now and May is Top Screen 2017, a festival of short films made by students at the Victorian College of the Arts. The Astor Theatre is showing a marathon of all Hobbit and Lord of the Rings films, if you need a lot of time to kill, on Sunday, March 19th, as well as, as a season of Quentin Tarantino, um, Michelangelo, Antonioni, Billy Wilder <gasps> films. I love Antonioni. Same. No, I can't. Especially on the big screen. So. Yeah, cool. Oh
1: yeah, that's going to be good. They're showing Zabriskie Point.
0: Yeah, cool. Um, they're also showing a whole bunch of Best Picture Oscar nominees. And finally, from the Alliance Française French Film Festival is still running until March 30th and there are plenty of quality films to catch there. Quality films can be caught all sorts of places. <laughs> they can, <laughs> even online. Even online. And if anyone who's subscribed <laughs> to Movie, and via my seamless segues, um, that's obviously most of you, has uh, got a lot of really great stuff on at the moment. Um, Eloise, is there something that jumps out at you from the current slate?
1: Yes, so I watched last night and actually, funnily enough, this is a movie that I had gotten from my university library about two days before it was uploaded onto Movie, so I kind of had planned on watching it anyway. The film is Tomorrow We Move, a 2004 feature from Chantal Ackerman. I think it's got about three weeks left on Movie, and it's really kind of a good one to see. I- have had some kind of sense that it's not all that available on DVD despite the fact that my university library has one, perhaps it's out of print or just not widely distributed in any case, it's pretty lucky that it's up there now Occasionally, Chantal Ackerman like, is very, can be very dramatic and very reserved and pared back, but this is a ludicrous kind of farce, so this is a oh. very silly, serious story but told in a very silly fashion it's about a, a a woman whose mother moves in with her who had just like needed to move apartments this, this, so this woman is a is a writer and she makes up lines for her stories as the day kind of goes on she just like stops what she's doing to write a line or to think of a line and you can see in her fiction, Um, and I think she writes erotic fiction, you can see (laughs) where the influences for her her day and her mundanity are getting put into this erotic fiction. Um, And so it's a very kind of funny premise, a bit silly, but really well done and really beautifully observed kind of relationships between her and her mother and whoever or whatever is going on around them, because half the time I've got no idea it's it's kind of a, a chaotic film. But it's really beautiful there's some really lovely cinematography this really great and creative engagement with with music with music on record and also playing the piano just a a super nice portrait and at times quite quite direct portrait of what it's like to be a woman at one point someone has stolen the main character's journal and in it she's written i'm a woman just as basic as that it's a really nice movie it's silly like don't watch it if you're just in the mood for something quiet because it does get very chaotic and a lot of people yell at each other or just talk loudly over one another in much the same way as life of riley which you watched anders um and so yeah. there's like a little bit of this frenchy fast going on yeah yeah but it's it's such a nice movie and it's such a cool. treat to watch anything by ackerman so that's my recommendation nice one Yes.
2: Uh, the aforementioned Life of Riley, which Eloise kindly let me know she hated. Uh, oh, just <laughs> before we started recording I feel this really episode. bad
1: that I hate it no, because I love okay. Alain Rene, So Yeah,
2: yeah. Well, okay. So it's the prolific Alain Renee. It's his last film. And he adapts the prolific playwright Alan Akebourne, British playwright. Uh, and this is a play about a year in the life of three middle-class British couples. They read British newspapers. They eat British food. They live in the British countryside, but they're played by French actors speaking French on sound stages. So it's this conceit that you either find amusing or you don't. And if you don't find that funny, it might not work for you. But basically, George Riley is this guy with a terminal illness who is the centre of these three couples social lives, although we never see him on screen. And Renee follows this unseen man's impact on these kind of annoying middle-class Brits speaking French, and the result is a light, but not lightweight, concoction of middle-class concerns. It, it's quite, I don't know, it sort of balances drama and comedy and French farce and all this kind of stuff in an enjoyable way. I found it very engaging in a way that some of his films that are in this mode, I haven't. Um, I think the set design is quite uh, stunning. So it's 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 filmed on like a very low budget, and um, these sound stages which have sets designed In like sort of like linen and like ginormous curtains in a way like these sort of painted cloth backdrops and basically every time there's an establishing shot of a location it's an illustration uh, of the house of these people's houses so their sort of lives are defined by these sort of grand British um, country houses that they each own and we see the sort of establishing shot of this illustration and then the camera will sort of fade that out and into the soundstage with sort of that house as like the backdrop. Yeah, I thought the performances were all engaging. I found it very witty, funny. Also kind of serious, very, very bourgeois, very sort of, you know, <laughs> rich retirees, you know, and their sort of concerns as they meet each other for various dinner parties. It's, it's one of those kinds of films. But I found it, I found it a lot of fun, very engaging. And it was his last, it's notable because it's René's last film. And he made a huge, I mean, he was a giant of French cinema for so long, for almost as half as long as cinema's been around. So, um, yeah, it's valuable in that respect, too.
0: Excellent, and there's two. Da- you've got two days left to watch that. On oh Monday. yeah, please get on, get, <laughs> get on to <onto> it, people. <laughs> <laughs> um, my choice uh, is around for another 22 days, I think, and it is uh, the film "Shadows of Forgotten Ancestors," which is a 1965 film by Sergei Paronov, um, and I singled this out for a lot of reasons, but particularly for its visual style and its sound. Its use of sound is phenomenal as well. So this uh, still tells the story of a man called Ivan, as fit- befits most Russian films. Um, growing up in a Ivan town-
1: Ivanovich, is that his name? <laughs> no, but no, it could
0: be. Oh Perhaps God. it could be a nod <laughs> to Ivan Ivanovich. I don't know. He's a man growing up in a small town in the Carpathian Mountains who falls in love with his childhood friend Marichka, who's also the daughter of the man who killed his father. And this being a very traditional um, village uh, means that when they get married, when, when yeah. Ivan ends up getting married, and I won't spoil by saying who he gets married to, Um, He's blindfolded and yoked to his bride, literally, which has given the film its most iconic image, which is these two um, people blindfolded and joined together by these bits of wood. Right from the opening second, Brennerhov fills this film with all these stylistic flourishes that keep tying the film back to the romantic drama at the centre. So it's become it's kind of like this Russian epic, but it has these hallucinations, all this religious imagery, this huge iconography, there's occasional cuts to um, amazing camera angles you just can't believe what's happening. And literally in the first 15 seconds of this film, if you just go to movie and press play on it, you'll see this amazing shot of a camera mounted at the very top of a tree which has been cut down and it fall, the tree falls and kills. You um, showed me this amazing shot of it, like blood being t- camera. turning into galloping horses. Yeah, yeah, it's nuts. Amazing. And the whole thing—the best, actually—the best thing about it is that he's just so pithy. This is like a Russian epic that's only ninety-five minutes long, um, and I <laughs> really don't see why there's any reason why people shouldn't go to movie and watch it. Cool.
1: I'm definitely going to do that.
0: But if you weren't, say, already a subscriber to movie, how could you um, access these films?
1: You could go, thanks to Mubi, you could go to Mubi.com slash cultural capital. That's M-U-B-I dot com slash cultural capital. And sign up getting an extra month free with the code cultural capital.
0: Yeah, just do it. Just, just, just go there. Do it. Just do, it, do yeah. it. Just do
1: it. You've got nothing to lose. <laughs> except. No, nothing. <laughs> I was going to say your time, but like, <laughs> no, there's
2: really <laughs> a lot of good stuff there. Um, you I have also, so much <laughs> cinema to gain. <laughs> can't, yeah, cut <can't>
1: that bit
0: <laughs> out. No, that's all good. Um, Scented Green Papaya is also showing, which is a modern classic. Cool. Um, thank you very much for making it to the end of episode 21 of Cultural Capital. If you want to rate and review us on iTunes, we'd be incredibly grateful. You can also follow us on Facebook at Cultural Capital Podcast.
1: And you can follow me personally on Twitter at Eloise Low Ross.
2: I'm on Twitter at AndersFurs. I'm at Andy
0: Ricky and all of us are collectively together at The Cold Cap Pod. We'll see you again in two weeks when we way well review the Lego Batman movie.
1: And we're all excited. And excited
2: yet. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>